Thanks, Tom. Welcome. Good to see you. Yeah, so I got a message from our Mark saying that, um, you know, some people didn't get back to Tom and he sent some emails to some other ones and they didn't get back to him. And then we tried every other A member and they said no. So would you like to speak tomorrow? Oh, but if the really hilarious Pat, if the guy from London shows up, well, then he'll be. <laughs> That's kind of the way it went. Uh, but I'm here and I'm very honored to speak at Tesnua. Of course, it's a special group to me. Uh, my name is Patrick. I'm a lovable guy and an alcoholic. And I'm here to tell you a bit about uh, where I've come from and what I'm doing today. And Annika, you're very welcome. It's nice to have you here today. So we'll, uh, we'll tell you the story. I have to connect. Let's see. Oh, got some Xanar eyes. I always like to have some compassionate eyes to, to hook into. Makes the job a little less uh, nerve wracking, right? So I, I, don't, I only know how to tell it one way, sort of in a linear fashion. But um, I, uh, I was born in downtown Toronto, Canada in 1956. The place was called Cabbage Town because that's where people who didn't have a lot of money and there was a lot of alcoholism and a lot of poverty. And that's what Cabbage Town was like. Today, it's where people who have a lot of money and a lot of good things live, right? So it's changed dramatically. But anyway, uh, my father was from just outside of Dublin, Ireland, and uh, had immigrated to Canada when he was a kid, but never forgot his roots. He loved Ireland like no tomorrow. And he was a um, he was a fun loving, singing, dancing kind of Irish fella um, who loved a good time, and I loved him dearly without question, right? But he was also an alcoholic and a, and an irresponsible one at that. And it, what that meant was that we we moved all the time, right? We didn't pay the rent and we moved and we moved and we moved. And as a little boy, I had no idea what this was all about, why we're doing this, right? And then one day discovered that uh, he was looking for some money. He lost his temper. He wasn't a, a violent guy in his alcoholism, but he needed some money for some alcohol. And he started tearing the kitchen apart and scared the living shit out of my mother and me. Right. And I had this bit of an awareness of, holy shit, this is this is what's going on here. This is what's causing the grief and the moving. And, you know, I was now finally old enough to to realize it was about alcohol, you know? And I, I made a, a vow to my mother that day that I would never, ever touch that, right? And, uh, and it's, it's funny, you know, it would have been something that I just forgot about, but um, for a long, long time, probably till I got into AA. And, uh, and I remember, you know, moving along, I'm 12 or 13 years old and somebody comes by with some, some gut rot wine or something and, uh, I didn't even think twice, not for a moment, that I shouldn't drink this. There was some part of me that already knew that that's exactly what I needed to feel a little bit better than I did, right? Because I had um, I had really grown like down and in. I've heard, I've heard it said that that children from healthy backgrounds grow up and out, and those from dysfunction grow down and in, and that that described me. 
I, from my earliest recollections, I didn't feel very good about myself, you know, and bouncing from school to school, always being the new kid, always having to fight to prove, you know, because people are going to challenge you. Um, you know, that wasn't a lot of fun as a kid, you know, but I still had this undying love for my father because he showed me love. He showed me attention. Um, my mother, on the other hand, any sort of discipline she tried to instill in me, I, I knew I could go around her and, and get my own way through him, you know? So, so it was a, a difficult relationship and, and, and she was sort of stuck in his alcoholism in a very, very codependent way. But as a little boy, I didn't look at it and go, well, I see she's codependent, has, you know, this connection to him that's very unhealthy. And no, I just knew that at a time when I could have used her, she was incapable of sort of ever, you know, hugging me or holding me or ensure, assuring me that things were going to be okay. Although she did, of course, the best she could, it still was difficult. I, I often felt rejected by her, you know. She just didn't have it in her. She was. She came from a French-Canadian family. She was the oldest of 11. She um, left school in grade six because she had to. They were having so many babies so quickly, somebody else had to provide, you know. So it, it wasn't easy for her. And I don't think she knew anything about love. I really don't, you know. Um, I didn't see that sort of connection between her and my father, even though I know they had it. They loved to ballroom dance. That's the way they met. Um, but I think that's the only time they had that sort of emotional connection was through dance, you know. Um, I, I didn't see it the rest of the time. So, you know, it, it was a difficult relationship for she and I. And um, and anyway, we go along and now I'm in my own cups and it's, it's fast and furious for me. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about just, you know, every drop of alcohol and every drug I, uh, you know, took into my system. But suffice it to say that anything that was going to make me feel a little bit better than I did, I was willing to try, you know? And as I say, even with the promise to my mother, there was some part of me without having ever touched alcohol before that knew that there was something in there for me, you know? Turns out I was right. And um, and again, right out of the gate, the moment, what's, what's so sad when I look back at that? And of course, I'll preface this by saying I... I I take responsibility for all of my drinking and all of my drugging. That doesn't make it any less sad. It doesn't make it any less, you know, debilitating to a young man's life because it robbed me of everything, of an education, of friendships, of family, everything in a very, very, very quick way, you know, um, because from the moment I had that first wine and I got that buzz and it didn't matter how sick I got, by the way, I just felt different. I had a confidence that I'd never experienced before. All the things you hear in these rooms so often. Um, I was home. I, I was on my way. I could speak to women. Oh my God. Talk about a gift. Holy shit. Who's going to turn that down? I couldn't say boo to a girl before that. Not nothing. And suddenly I'm like, would you like to dance? I, I think I'm Fred Astaire. Come on over here. You know, so <laughs> away we go. Right. And uh, I always tell a story that, that just sums it up because it was the same when I started taking drugs. They were, you know, again, just take it. So what had happened, my father got sober and my one of my brothers had moved to Florida. So we ended up moving to Florida when I was 15, right? And, uh, and you know, I fit right in with the hippie culture of the time. It was 1971. 
and you know the drugs began and, and still tons of drinking and we're my buddy and I we used to hang around with older guys we're like 15 and they're you know probably 21 and so we're in St. Petersburg Florida and we're driving around we're having our Budweiser's in the car and one of the guys in the front he reaches in his pocket and he takes a couple of pills and he holds them back like this my friend and I are just like right and the guy just shakes his head and he's like you two are something else those were the ends off of pool cues that I just gave you, right? And no part of me went, holy fuck, you'll do anything to get high. It was, it was more like, oh, so I'm not going to get a buzz off them then. You know, that sort of just dysfunctional, crazy thinking, right? I, mean, I was speaking somewhere at a meeting recently and a young guy, after I told that story when, in the sharing part later, he said to me, you brought back a memory that the first pill I ever took, I found on the men's room floor, right? And I thought, no, there's a guy who relates to me right there. Um, so that's what it was like. Anything, you know, it took very dangerous drugs that could have killed me easily. And and I would I would go down these LSD roads or masculine, masculine was a big thing at the time. And, and, you know, just all of them, right? Luckily, when I was 13 or 14, I uh, I had a bunch of operations. I had a deviated septum and just different things that I had to be hospitalized for short periods and ended up getting a lot of needles and it turned me off needles. Thank God it turned me off needles because when I was offered, you know, um, drugs that required injection, I, I, I couldn't go there, right? I think it saved my life, to be honest with you. Because my best friend in Florida died of an overdose of heroin when we were 24, and that sucked, right? So, so anyway, um, kept marching along that road, just one job to the next, you know, quitting jobs before I got fired. Um, and, and again, no view to the world other than the next fix. And I would, I would take a certain drug for a length of time, and like LSD, and I would scare the shit out of myself. I'd have a bad trip. And alcohol was my friend. Alcohol would never do that to me. Alcohol would never cause me to lose my mind. So I could always go back to it, right? And that's just what I did. It was almost like my anchor, the beautiful, fabulous alcohol, right? And of course, you know, it was the one that really destroyed me as I, as I, continued along the road. This went on daily till I was 28. And uh, I had moved back to Florida from Florida to Canada. My father, as I say, a sad thing there too, you know, he he didn't, he joined a, a, an AA group, I found out later, which was my group when I got back, to, like when I came to the program. Um, but he didn't stay, you know, he stayed for about a year, but I don't think he ever really connected to it. Just I'm getting this from my mother later on, you know, and uh, and so he just stopped drinking. That was it. Right. And to spend time with me when I was, you know, 14 or 15, he would buy me beers like we'd go fishing. Right. Because that I think he felt was the only way he was going to get my time. Right. He just didn't know any better. By no means did he want to see his son go down that road. Right. So he got ill with cancer that was the reason we moved back from florida because he was a world war ii vet and um and you know there was much better coverage for him in canada right so he went through the next three and a half years of the most ridiculous excruciating shit that you could ever 
go through as a human being. You know, he had a laryngectomy so that, uh, you know, they removed his vocal cords. He lost a lung. Uh, horrific shit, right? And as this went on, I, I didn't have the emotional, you know, growth or, or connection to self um, to really be there for him. And I, I resented myself for that because the sicker he got, the more I got in my cups, you know? And, uh, and as I say, I just began to move away. And it's one of the, it was one of the great shames of my alcoholism was, was his death. I remember going to, uh, to the hospital in Toronto when he was, didn't have long left and, and, uh, and feeling this guilt, like, like now I know he's gone or going and, uh, and I haven't been here for him, you know? And when I went in the room, I remember him just kissing my hand and looking at me with nothing but a father's love, right? Um, but that's not what went on for me inside. I felt like, you know, a bastard son who wasn't, you know, wasn't there for his dad, right? So then he died. And I just went fucking bonkers. Like if I was bad beforehand, um, it just got so much worse right it's you know we hear about alcoholism being a family disease and and uh, and i know that big time now and i know that that often it means that we're going to connect with people that come from that background right later in life when i got sober i ended up being a, a, a therapist for adult children of alcoholics and learned a lot in that career believe me in listening to others who didn't have problems with alcohol but came out of that system Right. And the day we buried my father, I met my wife to be right just after the wake. And what she got out of this is a woman who was a straight A student and, uh, you know, to looking to be a law clerk and and, you know, had the world by the tail. And here's this lunatic. And for some reason, she's attracted to me. And when, when I looked at my family, there were five of us and we either became alcoholics ourselves or married adult children of alcoholics, right? That's quite the five for five, you know? And it just seems to happen that way that there's that, that understanding of communication of where we've come from, right? Or lack thereof. So, you know, but on the other side of the coin, maybe my Joni, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the healthiest thing for her, but she saved my life, I can tell you that, through thick and thin, she was there, right? And I know I, I, I just, I wouldn't be if she hadn't, have, you know, helped me through those times and her love of me, right? And again, as I say, that was if there was one thing that was just at the core of it was I didn't love myself in any way, shape or form. I, I think this part of me always knew that uh, that my behavior was just unforgivable, you know? Um so that's how Alcoholics Anonymous began to take on an importance in my life, right? So I have this accident when I'm 28 years old, a, a really bad car accident where I just drive into the, in a snowstorm, I drive into the back of a cube van, no one in it or anything, but the car, how they got me out of it, I don't even know, right? And I had to go to the wrecking yard to pick it up. And I, I saw that car and it was like one of those moments that we talk about, you know, a, a moment of clarity. I had been to AA before, but all I did was compare my story. You know, I'd hear Buddy up there talking about his three wives and his 14 jobs he got fired from and his seven impaired driving charges. And I'd be like, 
what the fuck am I doing here? Like, listen to Buddy. God, you're lucky he's here, eh? And then I go leave in the Toronto beaches and go have some beers and stumble home and tell my girlfriend what a wonderful program it was, you know? Just was not ready, right? That was when I was in my early 20s and work was already sending me to day treatment and AA and, you know. So so anyway, this happens and I, I have this bad accident and that's enough of the drinking because it ends there. Um, and I end up going to AA with a different attitude, you know? And something that uh, that happened there, a man came into my life, his name was Joe Cushing, and he became my sponsor for 19 years. And, and man, that guy, anything I, I know my father would have liked to pass on me about being a, an adult, a man, a good citizen, Joe passed much of that on through his, you know, me looking at how he lived his life, right? But anyway, I, uh, my my mother, let's go back to her for a minute. She was with her her old woman friends and they were down in a big hotel where we we often have the the Ontario uh, AA conference. It's called the Royal York and, and she was down there sipping tea with her friends and this guy, she was listening to doctors speak about nutrition and so you got all these doctors and then you got this guy, she gave me his tape, this is how I heard this. And he gets up, he gets introduced and he gets up to talk about alcoholism and nutrition, right? Uh, two things that didn't matter to me in that moment. And uh, and then he gets up in front of all the old ladies on the tape. And he's like, oh, and I need to tell you, my name's Joe and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm like, and you're in a hotel telling a group of old women this. What the hell, buddy? But some part of me respected that he did that, right? So he, my, my mother approached him after this and said can you help my son and he just gave her his card and said have him call me anytime and that began our our relationship right and when I first met him he said why don't you think about maybe you know going back to AA see if there's anything there for you this time you know and I had a different you know sort of open mind and and away I went and, and got to this group and and uh I've told this often especially in Ireland here there were a couple of fellows that were from Belfast that um, belonged to this Pine Hills group. And I met them when I first came in the door. And and Jerry sponsored John and Jerry was a Catholic and John was a Protestant and they could give a fuck. This is just a few years after the troubles, um, but it didn't matter in Alcoholics Anonymous in any way. They had a great friendship and a great re relationship. And, and again, mirrored something for me that I needed to see, right? And and that began, you know, Jerry would call me up like at eight o'clock in the morning. I wasn't working, of course, because, you know, I didn't have a car or a life. I just was done. And uh, and he start reciting things from, you know, the 12 and 12 or something. I'd be like, the hell is this guy going on about? Right. But I knew he gave a shit. That's what mattered. You know, and John would take me to meetings and and it began that process where I'm thinking, what do these guys want? But I knew I had absolutely nothing to give. So there couldn't be anything they were looking for, that's for sure, right? And it was that first experience of unconditional love of one alcoholic giving to another, right? And and to experience it was something very special. Um, I, I gravitated to every part of it and went along. And it was like, I'll tell you, for those first few years, everything I touched turned to gold. It really did. I uh, I married Joni. She, 
she's upstairs right this minute. As a matter of fact, all these decades later, um, and I got the job of a lifetime, was making money like I'd never seen. But inside, I still had this, this story, you know, the stories I tell myself and that I was not worthwhile and, and really wasn't, um, didn't deserve the good things, you know. So talk about sadness. You got a guy who can't live in the disease in any way because it's going to kill him. And then I'm in recovery and I'm having trouble enjoying the good. You know, there used to be an expression in the program that you really don't hear too often anymore, but it's that some of us get too much too quickly. And that's what I had. You know, I had money. I had, you know, the, as I said, the woman of, of my dreams, um, good things going on in my life, right? I ended up owning a couple of businesses and there came a point I got sick and I started taking this cough syrup and I wouldn't take one that had alcohol or codeine in it, but it had something else. And it grabbed a hold of me and wouldn't let go. And it was the most confusing time of my life, the saddest time. Um, everything, the shit hit the fan. You know, I was like, well, I got all this money. Why don't I go get some cocaine? Why don't I drink alcohol again? But that didn't interest me. That had been, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't and wouldn't go there. You know, I, I was, I'd had about almost four years of sobriety right and it's funny the way things were looked at this was in the in the mid 80s and and uh and i was coming up on a five-year medallion as a matter of fact but i was already taking this shit and i went to the group to the to the business meeting and i said you know here's what's going on and one of the old timers said is there alcohol in this cough syrup i'm like no he's like oh i move we give patrick this five-year medallion and then they took a vote and you know i did not accept that because i knew that i'd compromise my sobriety it was that simple right so anyway we move along a little more here because this went on and on and two people because i was so all over the map two people joe cushing and joe c who many of you know from beyond belief they could be there for me joe would call me up young joe that was this was old joe young joe and take me out for a game of pool or to a show or something, you know, and just spend the time with me, right? And that meant everything because it was hard for a lot of my friends in my home group to be around me because they didn't know if I'd be this guy or that guy, you know, because I didn't leave the program. I kept fighting to try to find my way back, you know, um, but just couldn't. I'd get off of it for months and then I'd be back on and, and just, again, the... The most hellacious time i thought my alcoholism was bad because it was but this shit with what had gone on i pulled the rug out from under Joni's feet again we're building this new life and here we go so you know so uh, again how are you going to feel in any way okay with yourself in that you know and the confusion that cunning baffling powerful well why aren't i drinking again why blah 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 and I had trouble letting new information come in because I already know, you know, I've done the steps, I've done the program, I, I already know, you know, so that got in the way. And I, uh, again, I, I ended up going, there was a, a older Joe had, had two friends who'd started a ranch in Arizona. It was like a long-term place that specialized in like childhood issues and uh, just the things I needed, right? because I was carrying some shit that, that 
was destroying me my life, you know? And uh, I mean, we can only get in touch with as much as we're capable of getting in touch with when I'm doing my fourth and fifth step the first time around, right? So I went there, I spent six months, the most challenging time, because again, I've left Joan, you know, with my business behind and left everything and just, you know, standing in the Arizona desert on New Year's Eve of 1991, and tears are rolling down my cheeks. And I'm thinking, is there something here for me? Because I tried everything, right? I, uh, I was in, always in spiritual confusion, shall we say. Um, certainly, you know, did my best to open myself to sort of a higher power idea, but couldn't go with the God thing. I had just a little too much Catholicism through school and high school for that shit, right? Um, but again, you know, I did my best to believe something might be there, right? So, so anyway, I spend this time there and things changed. I got out. I would be in session sharing about, you know, childhood shame, um, vomiting, like right after the session because the hurt was so deep, you know, getting in touch with what went on with my father and I, right? It's like I forgave every bit of his alcoholism, but not my own. You know, that's kind of what was going on there, right? So, so anyway, that's kind of the, the depth of the therapy that went on in that place, right? Um, and it absolutely changed my life. It was difficult to be there that long, but every day just having it to focus on nothing but my recovery, right? And I found a sense of self there that I'd never experienced. I found an okayness with Patrick. I found a lovability, you know? Why do I say that today? Because it's important to me. I know that it's the difference between life and death for this alcoholic it is. I've proven that to myself, you know? And uh, so I come home from there and I have to share a couple of things with you because it's important sort of about that sort of spiritual journey you know like i say the god thing is just just even the word just doesn't work for me right um but I, i've had a couple of experiences like when i first got sober the world started to look different right it started to i saw beauty in simplicity and and uh and and Joni worked for this lawyer who had a place in Vermont and he was like, Oh, you guys, this, this chalet, you know, you can go stay there. So we went for a week. Right. And while we were there one night, we uh, it's just before sunset and we go for a walk down this, this dirt road behind the, the cottage thing. And as we get to the end of the road, there's a pond and the sun is shining on the pond and there's trout just feeding at the top. And I was like, fuck. Like, wow, right? It just, there was just something about it in that moment, right? And I looked down and there was a red piece of granite at my feet and I picked it up and I was like, holy shit, would you look at that? I say to Joan, right? She's like, yeah, it's a rock all right. I'm like, no, no, look at this, right? Sure enough, I looked down again. There's a black rock, smoothest rock, roundest rock I've ever seen in my life ever two of them in the same place imagine the odds and i show her this one and she's like fuck buddy is this lsd flashbacks going on here or what right long story short she's like buddy we gotta go it's it's getting dark right 
I start filling my pockets with these magical rocks. We get, we get back to the chalet and we'd been in Burlington. I bought some shoes, throw the shoes out of the box because I need the box to arrange the, the rocks in, put them under my bed, lest a Vermont robber come along and steal the rocks, right? It was like, wow, <laughs> some profound shit here, right? So when I wake up in the morning, I used to say, well, they were just rocks. Well, they were never just rocks again after that experience. And it was just me seeing the earth and nature in a different way. You know, um, some people will put a God to that. I, I don't, you know, I, I did at one time in my sort of journey. Um, but anyway, look, again, it all leads back to love for me, right? And, and that's what happened there with that experience. And then we move forward to this time where I've come back. I have never been to my father's grave. I just couldn't go there. But I come back from Arizona and I go there, right? And I have an experience there as well, where it's like, I feel this sense of letting go, right? That I'm okay with me. And he's okay with me. And it just was, I just stood there and sobbed and let go of this hurt and this, because, you know, I, I loved him dearly as I started out saying, and I, I wanted to get back to that place, you know, and I did in that moment. And my thoughts of him, have, have, because see, I couldn't even remember the good times because they were so clouded with the bad, right? Um, but I remember I, 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 I get back from this experience and I phoned Joe Cushing. I'm like, man, wouldn't believe what just happened to me. Holy shit, right? And and so I tell him, you know, and he says, it reminds me of the song Danny Boy, which if there's one thing my father loved, it was to sing Irish songs and he could really sing Danny Boy was one of his favorites. But I'd never heard the song other than the pipes are calling, yeah, 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 you know, old guys singing old Irish songs. But in there, there is a part about you know, like a son going to war, like I did with my war on me and alcohol. And, and you know, when you come back, come to my grave and say an ave there for, you know, kneel and say an ave there for me. And my grave will warmer, sweeter be. Right? And the love that goes on between those two people, right? So, so this is what the experience was anyway. So there's a point to my, my madness, my rambling here about this is that even with these things happening today, I see them as acts of love. I don't see them in a, in a, in a I, I just, I, I'm too clouded by what religion and particularly Catholicism brought to me. Even the 30 years of dissecting that and getting rid of, you know, old notions, um, I find myself at a place where I see more logic to things than I ever did, right? And yet I, I, I remain open to, to spiritual experiences, shall we say. Our, our, our literature tells us about having had a spiritual awakening. I believe that's what's gone on there. But in that, I look at that as acts of love. Whenever I'm in the presence of an act of love, there's, there's something above emotion, deeper than emotion for me that goes on in that moment. You know, when I get out of my alcoholism and I do something for another alcoholic freely without want, there's a magic to it in my life. And I see those acts go on around me all the time. Uh, it's funny, 
just a, a young fellow who I sponsored for many years spoke at Beyond Belief Toronto last uh, two weeks ago, right? And it, and it was a nice thing because he lives quite a distance from me now, so I don't see him like I used to. But to watch him go from a guy who was looking to take his own life to being a very successful lawyer today with a beautiful wife and a wonderful life. And so sometimes when we see it outside of ourselves, there's a, a deeper appreciation of what of what we're watching, at least for me, you know. And I've had that along the years a few times. I, a sponsorship to me is like such a cornerstone of the fellowship. Like I can't imagine what it would have been like to not have Joe Cushing in my life, you know, to be to, just a guy who gave a shit. When I was going through the counselor, he was he was a busy guy. He was an old guy, but he was a busy guy. And he was like, Patrick, just call me every day just to say hello, just to get on the phone. And I didn't realize just how important it was for me to do that until I did, you know, and in retrospect, wow, because there was such dark, day, dark, dark days, right? I mean, I had depression that was unbelievable through that period. And, uh, and to have him on the other end of the line, right? Then here's what kind of guy our Joe C is. And I don't say this to kiss his ass, because I'll be the first to give him grief because we've had a 30-year relationship, right? Longer than that. I, uh, I was in the throes of the cough syrup, and Joe took me out for a game of pool. And we, uh, we drove back to his place. And just as he was like, getting out of the van, he turned to me and he said, you know, I'm, I'm busy these days and I don't have a lot of time for a lot of friends, but I need you to know you're one of my very best. And my love for you is unconditional. Then he got out of the van. And I held on to that for all I was worth, you know, because again, what was that? But one alcoholic loving another, you know, never forgot that, that, uh, you know, that experience. And to call him my best friend to this day, 30 years later is a, an honor, you know? So anyway, I think that gives you an idea of, of what's going on for me. The, oh, here's, here's, here's a wild one. The young guy, the young lawyer guy, there's him and then his buddy, who I also sponsored for a long time, and another guy who went on to be a, a counselor at a, uh, at a university here and uh, locally. Um, they, uh, both of them I took to Beyond Belief Toronto back in the day, maybe, I don't know, a dozen years ago. Because I was like, oh, look what they're doing down here. It's different, you know? So even though I was looking for different, because I couldn't stand that we did Lord's Prayer and some of the things that, that we did in the meeting that I belonged to. Um, so both of them ended up starting free thinkers groups here locally. But I still didn't let go of traditional, because again, I'll tell you right now, obviously traditional AA saved my life. I'm never going to deny that, even though I felt like I was a free thinker through the process, that fellowship, those steps, and the members saved my life, period, right? But it's okay also for me to kind of move forward here and go, you know what, there's a different discourse about alcoholism that's going on in these secular rooms. And it wasn't until soon, because I just stopped going to meetings. In traditional, I just stopped, right? Um, and, and again, like I say, that just shows you it was like how married I was to the concept of the traditional meeting. 
And again, you know, Joe said to me when, when Zoom started, hey, why don't you check it out online? Well, you know, we started doing like Tuesday uh, uh, Queen Street Mental Health meeting. And, and that's where we met our Mark here, right? And he said, oh, we're starting an Irish group. Uh, we could use a bit of support. And Joe and I started to attend it every week. And, you know, that's, that's where it began, you know. And then I just was like addicted to it, like, you know, in the beginning, right? It was like, oh, my God, let's go to California to a meeting. Ireland, oh, my God, right? And we started Shirley. There's my Shirley here. Uh, Shirley and Mark and uh, oh, Jeb, of course, was there. Who else do I see? There's plenty of people. Even Susan from Manhattan might have been D. Um, you know, a lot of people that came and we had a, a, our, our Annie. I'm sure Annie shows up here sometimes from Dublin. Um, we had a cool group there and it meant a lot to me to be able to go and talk about that, you know, and and uh, and again, my father's homeland. And as Tom said at the beginning, I, I've been to Ireland now twice, but the first time I was kind of neat because I found my father's childhood home and uh, and I got there and and as I'm there, I see I'm on these old steps. It's a very old house. It's like 1750. And and I can see like my Uncle Pat, my Uncle Jim and my father and my Uncle Joe coming down the steps of this house 100 years ago. And it overwhelms me. As you can see, I'm a bit of an emotional fella. In a real good way. I'm fucking glad I'm in touch with what's really going on with me. So um, so as I'm thinking about these characters coming down the stairs, the guy opens the door now because I've already rang the bell. And I'm like, I think my father was born here. He's like, come on in. Typical Irish uh, hospitality, right? Guy spent the next 90 minutes chatting with me about the house. And we... We were just in June in, in Ireland for a number of weeks and uh, met all these wonderful people, right, which was fantastic, but also went to the house and sat with the people and talked some more about that. And these are gifts of sobriety, period, you know. I know I wouldn't even be alive, but to be able to, like, get on a plow, I think I'll go meet some of these people in real life. And to be able to do that, it's only one reason, because I'm sober. That's it. So sobriety allowed me to work a bit, you know get a few shillings in the uh, in the bank and so on, right? So that's kind of what we're doing today is uh, coming out of COVID. We've had like four trips in the last year and we're just heading down to New Brunswick next month again. And, and you know, that's, uh, I have an appreciation of that today that's unparalleled, you know? And the gift that secular meetings and Zoom particularly has given me is just, it's renewed everything I love about recovery listening to people's other people's stories and making friendships and you know it, it can't be beat it just can't be beat you know and all these years later um love is still at the core of it you know and that doesn't change for me acts of love as something you know that may be spiritual i don't know whether it is or isn't but for me it, it hasn't changed in a long long time and i, I hope it never does you know because when I'm in that place, things are good. Thank you. Appreciate you listening to me today.